The following program is for informational and educational purposes only. This program does not replace medical, mental health, or psychological diagnosis and treatment prescribed by your personal physician, psychologist, therapist, or other health care provider. Please consult your provider for diagnosis and care before beginning or changing any program or idea discussed. Welcome to Recovery, the Hero's Journey. Your host is Dr. Patricia Halligan. If addiction or prescription drug dependence affects you directly or indirectly, whether it's you, a family member, or a close friend, stay tuned over the next hour as we explore substance use disorders, process addictions, and prescription drug dependence. We'll be discussing the painful reality behind these disorders and what can be done to help. Now, here is Dr. Patricia Halligan. Hi, I'm Dr. Patricia Halligan. Welcome to Recovery, the Hero's Journey. Today, we're talking about stimulant addiction. Overdose deaths involving stimulants are on the rise. The CDC reports that in 2020, 46% of overdose deaths involved methamphetamine and 21% involved cocaine. We are seeing an alarming increase of people taking opioids and stimulants together. Here to talk with us today is Dr. Robert Malcolm. Dr. Malcolm was trained as a primary care physician and a psychiatrist. He is a clinician, researcher, and teacher at the Medical University of South Carolina. Dr. Malcolm has conducted clinical pharmacology studies for over 35 years. He has had funding from the VA, NIAAA, and NIDA, and private pharmaceutical companies for clinical medication development with special emphasis on addictive disorders. He has served as principal investigator or co-investigator on numerous placebo-controlled double-blind trials. Dr. Malcolm has had extensive experience with the administration of medications in oral, intravenous, subcutaneous, and intranasal forms. He has conducted trials with topiramate or topamax, naltrexone, modafinil or provigil, gabapentin or neurontin, carbamazepine or tegretol, and other medications to treat substance use disorders. Dr. Malcolm, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for being here. Well, thank you, Dr. Halligan. Thank you for having me. Uh, That's a lovely introduction and sounds like something I wrote myself. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it does, Bob, because it's so humble. I said, send me a short bio. And then I looked at it and I, I thought to myself, This does not include the hundreds of peer review articles or awards or chapters uh, that you've authored. Um, So I I tell you, we go way back. I met you, I think, 24 years ago um, in 1997 when I came to Medical University of South Carolina. And I remember you then and you you had a a sense of humility about you then. I, I really really liked how you conducted yourself with with patients. Well, that's very kind. You were just a child, as I remember, when you came to the medical (laughs) university, working there on the faculty. And uh, I really enjoyed working with you. Uh, And it it was a great loss when you left. And uh, but it's so good to see you again. I'm really happy to be back in Charleston. Um, You and I had uh, two things in common. we really, really loved our clinical work, um, really loved the patients. And that makes you stand apart from researchers uh, who just do research only. I mean, you loved the patients. And we also were um, a wall against 
benzodiazepines. We really understood the dangers and the harms of prescribing benzodiazepines uh, long-term. And we also were um, very pro 12-step uh, support organizations. And, and, and I think we're both, Pat, uh, we're both still pro 12-step organizations. They're so valuable in people's lives for so many different reasons. Maybe we'll talk some about that later on in your program, but that, that, that's true. And benzodiazepines, you know, as I've treated people through the years, and, and I must say now I do more treatment of patients than I do research. And I, I, that is my first love. And I, I just see the devastation benzodiazepines do long-term. It's just uh, a tragedy when people come to me on benzos or want me to start a benzo. And I just don't want to do that. It is a mistake. Those drugs were meant for short-term use. They've never been properly studied in long-term use. And the long-term consequences are just disasters for people's memory, their reflexes, their coordination, their fall risk. And as you and I both know, getting people off of benzos is one of the hardest treatments that we can ever do. I'm so glad you're saying this. It's music to my ears. So we have right now two psychiatrists in America who recognize the dangers of prescribing benzodiazepines. That makes two of us. And it's, a, it's, it's lonely. Uh, I don't know about you, but my colleagues don't even recognize it, Bob. I, I know. And benzos are started capriciously by physicians in all fields. And that would co cover from radiology to surgery, to ophthalmology, to medicine, to family medicine, pediatrics, psychiatry. And uh, we're, uh, we're considered odd ducks. Although if you look closely at the literature, you can see the devastation and you can see the, the control trials and you can see the the, the results of what happens with long-term use. And one of the things that bothers me that the literature epidemiology studies go back and forth about benzos, but, uh, you know, benzos are definitely a risk factors for dementias, for Alzheimer's disease. And, right. you know, people are on benzodiazepines for 20, 30, 40 years as they age, and that cannot be good. I agree with you. I mean, as I age, the last thing I want is anything that impairs my balance or my cognition. And all the people that knock on our doors, uh, what do they tell us? Uh, they say, my memory is bad. I have little mini blackouts. Um, I am, I'm sad. Benzodiazepines give a, a, a rebound insomnia. They give a rebound depression. They give a, a increase in people's anxiety uh, when they start to develop an interdose withdrawal. And they ruin lives. And I'm not, I'm neither one of us are, are drawn to hyperbole. No. And, you know, I tell patients that uh, benzodiazepines solve your problem and then they create your problem in between doses. And they, uh, people think they're getting worse, but they're, what's happening is their serum level of their benzos are dropping, then specifically their brain levels are dropping and the anxiety comes back and the worries and the panic attacks and so forth recur between doses and they up their doses. And it's a, such a vicious cycle for those people. And very few patients and doctors understand that, I think. 
I agree. It's a hard population to treat because they're in agony. And sometimes I think it was um, the FDA that took a look at 104 uh, specific complaints uh, last year and then revised the uh, FDA black box warning for benzodiazepines. And they said the average person uh, takes at least nine months of withdrawal symptoms and sometimes years and yeah, right. Right. And I, I've treated people recently who've taken two to three years of slow tapers to get off of benzodiazepines. And of course, some people simply cannot get off of benzodiazepines and seizures, cardiac arrhythmias, uh, delirium are all problems during that process of getting people off and, and, and elderly people. Uh, sometimes even death can be a consequence of trying to get them off benzodiazepines. I'm so glad you were willing to go there with me. Um, what, now, when I met you for the first time, you were teaching med students, teaching psychiatry residents, teaching fellows. I think you were teaching some pharmacology students. You were doing research, countless number of research studies, uh, and seeing your own patients. So you've, been, uh, you've had a career in addiction medicine now for how long, Bob? How many years? Uh, I would say since the early, well, 19, let's say 30 plus years, 35 years. And if I asked you a couple of adjectives to describe this career of yours, what it's been, two, twofold question, a couple of adjectives to describe what it's been like working with people with addictions for 30 plus years, that would be the first part. So I'll ask you that first. Gratifying and frustrating. And, and what's the gratifying part and what's the frustrating part? I think anytime uh, a person is able to combat addiction and live a clean and sober life day to day, uh, that, that's, and I use the term miraculous, and I don't use that lightly, but I think that's a, a, a beautiful thing that happens in people's lives that opens up so many doors for them in their lives. Uh, frustrating because, as you and I know, uh, many people uh, can't or don't uh, do well in treatment. And, you know, sometimes that's us. Sometimes that's them. Sometimes it's genes, biology, who knows mm -hmm. sometimes. And, uh, and, and people die in addiction. People have psychotic illnesses in addiction. Uh, and people get incarcerated with addiction. There are many disasters, outcomes, and, um, you know, seeing someone, one of the most frustrating things is seeing someone trying to treat them. And then three years later, their attorney calls me and said, they've been in this terrible car accident. It involves their addiction and they face going to prison. And I do what I can do to help, but many times they end up incarcerated and their whole lives have been derailed and wrecked by their addiction. And of course, people overdosed last year alone. There were over 90,000 deaths from opioid addiction. There were 16,000 deaths from stimulant addiction in this country last year. And that's on the rise, isn't it? It is on the rise. It's going up disastrously. Last year, there were more seizures from methamphetamine than any year in recorded history in emergency departments. And, and what, what are the trends? 
the the stimulant trends across America? Well, the stimulant trends are uh, growing. Mm-hmm. Uh, methamphetamine addiction is growing. I, I don't think people realize the magnitude of methamphetamine addiction, but worldwide of illicit substances next to marijuana products, methamphetamine addiction is the number two addiction worldwide. There is at least between 50 and 60 million people worldwide. Wow. Uh, Two thirds or three quarters of those people are in um, Asia primarily. About 20% of them are in North America, Mexico, and Canada, um, and some in Europe. But the trends are in the wrong direction. And the other trend, as you know, is that stimulants are being laced with fentanyl and that the combination of the stimulant and the opioid uh, is leading to a lot of deaths. And uh, so the the trends are all moving in the wrong direction right now. Another epidemic, right? Another epidemic is facing us. And we have a silent epidemic to once again return to benzos. We have millions and millions of people on benzos. And the long-term consequences of that are yet to be seen. And I kind of predict that from a certain point of view, when the long-term consequences of three and four decades of benzo use really come out, we're going to see that epidemic really out in the open. I hope so. Uh, You see a lot of it on uh, grassroots organizations support communities because medical communities aren't really talking about it. I remember going to Harvard, uh, Mass General would put on a comprehensive review of substance abuse treatment every year. And the speakers for benzodiazepine uh, addiction or dependence, I should say, uh, physiological benzodiazepine dependence and withdrawal was minimal. That was probably one of the primary reasons I would go there. And I would sit on the front row and I would get my pencil sharpened and I would wait for new drugs that were coming out, new uh, research, nothing, Uh, hardly even uh, mention. So I know. So I'm really glad you're speaking on this. Uh, And with respect to cocaine and methamphetamine, if we take a look at North America, where do we see most of the cocaine addiction and most of the methamphetamine addiction? Well, as you know, it's very geographic. It's always, I've never really quite understood it, but if we take uh, the Mississippi River as the dividing line, west of the Mississippi is methamphetamine land and east of the Mississippi is is cocaine land. Now, mm-hmm. there pockets of exceptions to that. They're pockets of cocaine use westward and pockets of uh, methamphetamine use. You know, one of the strangest things is um, upper counties of South Carolina. um, There's a pocket there of two or three counties. I won't mention them by name, Mm -hmm. but where methamphetamine has crowded out cocaine over the last several years. And uh, Mm -hmm. a few years ago, my colleagues and I wanted to study long-term effects of methamphetamine. And we actually went up to those three counties to recruit subjects, people who were in recovery from methamphetamine addiction Ooh, uh, to study. And, and uh, that those three counties had huge populations of people. And of course, you know, in, it used to be in the old days that methamphetamine production was uh, sort of out of vans and people's garages. Right. And now it's manufactured uh, 
south of the border and in other in Asian countries also. Mm-hmm. And it's shipped in by the ton. And it's no longer such a mom and pop business anymore. And there's just, you know, a distributing network for that. And uh, uh, it's quite alarming. But again, it's geographic, more cocaine toward the east and more methamphetamine toward the west. Now, you spent a great many years trying diligently to try to find medications to help combat cocaine cravings. Many would say I threw away the best years of my life trying to find <laughs> medications to treat. So, you know, we have medications, n- none of which are perfect and far, they're, they're far from perfect to treat alcohol use disorder, uh, smoking uh, cessation, uh, opioid disorder. Uh, but so far we have been stymied, uh, although there's still some promise for drugs to treat methamphetamine uh, addiction and cocaine addiction. Um, And there are things that we use off-label that help some people on their journey. But we really have to rely a lot on what we call psychosocial treatments. And, you know, perhaps at some point we can talk about those. So can you talk to us a little bit about, and and I find that really, uh, really tragic. And I have a lot of sympathy for people struggling with cocaine addiction and struggling with meth uh, amphetamine addiction, just for that reason, because like you say, this has been super exciting to be in the front lines in addiction psychiatry over the last 25 to 30 years. I mean, you and I have seen buprenorphine uh, be FDA approved. I mean, that was a game changer with people addicted to opioids, correct? It has been. It's been such a safe and less expensive than methadone um, really has. You know, I have so many success stories of patients who were terribly addicted to heroin and uh, prescription opioids who now have gone back to school. They've married. They've stayed on their Suboxone. They've do the, done their 12-step work. They've been in therapy. And it's just been miraculous. And, of course, people who are on Suboxone do not die. And that is a critical importance because with opioid addiction, the chances of a overdose are quite high. Absolutely. And it's been a miracle drug. I always call it a miracle drug. I agree with you. And uh, I, I get really angry with the stigma that surrounds it. Uh, like you, like you say, if you take buprenorphine, fifty percent less overdose, fifty uh, percent less relapse, and with the fentanyl out there, why not? Yes, absolutely. And I, you know, we think we've done a good job at educating our uh, physicians, pharmacists, and nurses about that. Mm. But no, and I, you know, I have patients who go to the pharmacy to fill their. Uh, suboxone or, you know, g- generic buprenorphine naloxone is the name for that. Uh, but they go in the pharmacist gives them a hard time and makes them feel small or that they're doing the wrong thing or so forth. But it is a life-saving drug and it has really made a difference and people improve the quality of their life and are able to get on with their life. And if you've got somebody who's doing opioids and methamphetamine or stimulants of any kind, and you could give them a drug to stop the opioid cravings, perhaps then they could overcome the stimulant addiction, put them on buprenorphine. 
I do. And, and that, at least then we have one less problem to work on and we can then focus on the stimulant addiction, which as you know, the, the, the problem with stimulant addiction is the addiction occurs so rapidly. Right. And then the social deterioration and the medical complications can occur so quickly with stimulant addiction that it is a very tough problem. And although psychosocial treatments really help some people, they're not universally available and they can be expensive. And there's a, 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 not enough trained practitioners, therapists to do the psychosocial treatments for stimulant addiction. So in many areas of the country, particularly rural areas, there, there just isn't adequate resources. And, and sometimes there's not even 12-step programs in some areas for stimulant addiction. Now, you told me a while back that the thing that drew you to do cocaine research was seeing patients in the hospital with medical complications because of a cocaine addiction. What kind of medical complications can you see if somebody's got a cocaine addiction? Well, you know, years ago, we saw mainly IV cocaine use, and then we saw the, the, uh, the problems related to that. You still see that, but less commonly. So you, you see infections of the heart and heart valves, mm -hmm. uh, blood infections with that. We see HIV from, you know, sharing needles, of course, or unsafe sex, uh, hepatitis C for the same reasons. All of those were complications. And I've always been struck with both cocaine and methamphetamine, the number of uh, brain strokes, hemorrhages in the brain, clots in the brain, um, really amazing uh, in young people. One of the leading causes, of course, of strokes in young people is stimulant addiction. Uh, for, for a variety of reasons, it changes clotting factors, but it also changes the vascularity of the brain and produces spasm or narrowing of the blood vessels in the brain. And it just uh, it can be devastating. And of course, once a blood vessel bursts in the brain and blood gets oh. out into the tissue of the brain, that Game often over. leads to paralysis or death right away. Right. And Nora Volkow uh, did quite a few uh images of people addicted to, was it methamphetamine? She did the MRI series that comes yes. up in a lot of uh, conferences yes. um, where she was studying uh, how long it takes the brain of someone addicted to methamphetamine to fully recover. And I think she says like between one and two years, the brain doesn't really recover for like 14 to 16 to 18 months, right? Yes. And I, and I think she would say that in some people who she studied, the brain was out two years in those people, and they still had not recovered. And, and I know in our small work we did with uh, methamphetamine addiction, we were studying people who had been abstinent six or greater months. And when they were shown pictures in the scanner of methamphetamine paraphernalia or methamphetamine itself, uh, Th their brain still lit up just as if they had used it. And of course, their craving, their subjective craving, which again, craving for meth and cocaine is uh, so incredibly intense in people. And it's not just a psychological phenomenon. Often people will describe a feeling in their throat uh, of the craving or a feeling in their stomach area of the craving, which right. is very intense. And, uh, you know, stress, uh, looking at 
cocaine cues, whatever those cues might be, or even driving in a neighborhood. Um, I can recall many years ago of a, a, a medical personnel person that I treated. And one of the ways we helped him not relapse was to get literally, this was prior to the days of MapQuest, we, would, we got a map out and he would have to take a very circuitous route home because if he went down certain streets, the craving just inflamed him uh, like a fire and he was going to go to his dealer. And so only by taking a long route home around those areas was he able to to really stay abstinent. Of course, he was having a lot of other help, too. Uh, he was attending a 12 step work. We were I was seeing him in therapy and um, we, we were trying some adjunctive medicines that may or may not have helped him. Wow, but that's that's tedious. If you're talking about one day at a time for, of intense cravings for six to twelve to eighteen months, I mean, that's. I remember Showblock in two thousand and three uh, seeing a lot of his charts, and one chart he he was basically studying animals, and he looked at the uh, nucleus accumbens in the reward center of the brain, mm-hmm. and he he basically. Um, took uh, levels of dopamine surges one hour after ingestion. So he he compared them to natural rewards of food and sex. And an hour after eating something, maybe the dopamine level rose to 150. Uh, An hour after sex, the dopamine level was around 200. And then he he gave them alcohol and he gave them cigarettes, nicotine. uh, And uh, it was up just a little bit above food and sex, around 200 to 25 gave them cocaine and the dopamine surge was 350, gave them methamphetamine and the dopamine surged up to 1500. So that's, that's right. it's like eight times the amount of a natural reward. So this is what we're dealing with. This is, and this is the sad part. Um, uh, I think Bob is that uh, the family members and the spouses, the friends oftentimes say you have no self-control and it's yeah. not the same thing as not eating the second piece of cake. Is it? No, it's not. It's this uh, mesolimbic system in the brain that really is a system that we use for reward. We use for learning so many different things, but that gets so distorted by stimulants. And, and the other part about that, that stimulants are so immediately more rewarding, which helps us understand why people give up loved ones, social activities, sports, just to get to that stimulant. The other thing that's happening constantly, even with the first dose of the stimulant, whether it be methamphetamine, which even as you point out, is even more dramatic than cocaine, is, is that the system of reward downregulates itself to try to protect itself. It creates a, a, a different uh, set point. And so, the people have to use larger and larger doses to get near, as they say, chasing that first high, and they never quite get back there again. Uh, and then when they become abstinent and hopefully into some early recovery, the, the natural rewards, the natural reinforcers of life are blunted. So right. sexuality, seeing a sunset, reading a good book, talking with a close friend, um, petting one's dog. All of those things are rewarding to us, but to the person in early recovery from a stimulant addiction, all of those things are blunted. They're blah. They're 
meaningless in the existential sense. And, you know, helping people through that stage is uh, tough. And, you know, a lot of doctors mistake that for depression. And right. it's really related to this reward system having been, been set at a lower level, or we call an allostatic reset. And um, it, it takes, as Nora Vokow has pointed out in her research, maybe two years or more for some people to reinstate a normal homeostasis mechanism where those other rewards start having uh, deep, rewarding, pleasurable meanings again. So uh, j that's just another thing that adds to the problem of early recovery. I'm, I'm glad you're saying that. If I were in recovery, early recovery, which we call the first two years, and I heard that, and you said to me, nothing's really going to give you a lot of joy. There's nothing wrong. Welcome to early recovery. Everything is a flatness. You don't have a lot of joy. Nothing brings you a lot of pleasure. You, your brain's going to take a while to reset all your D2 receptors, your dopamine receptors that have been downregulated. So this, eventually you will have joy again. So that would make me feel better knowing that this is normal. That's right. And I, and I try to tell patients or give them analogies like your life will be black and white. It'll be like a black and white movie, perhaps for yeah. the next two years, maybe longer. Yeah. But then the color starts to come back to life. The vivid hues start coming back. And that's when you know you've passed that early stage of recovery. And you, you've got to wait for it. You've got to be patient. But what you're going through is to be expected. Now, uh, Bob, what are some of the off-label medications we could offer people who are having bad cravings for cocaine and bad cravings for um, methamphetamine? And, and these are not research supported in a huge way, but they work for some. And if I was having a cocaine addiction and, and overcome by cravings and I couldn't prevent myself from relapsing, I would try every off-label medication that existed. Right, because the, the, the craving is so tough and the relapse rate so high, if we can find a medicine that for any one patient is safe, doesn't interact with other medicines and has low side effect profile, um, they're generally worth a try because we, we have to do all we can now. Uh, that doesn't de-emphasize the need for psychosocial treatment counseling and so forth. It, 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 these are adjunctive treatments, I would call them. They're add-ons that help some people. So just to list a few of these and to comment on each one of them, I, I would say uh, gabapentin. Um, gabapentin has shown to be a useful drug uh, medication for uh, alcoholism in some cases. Uh, it, in, in some people with stimulant addiction, particularly cocaine addiction, it seems to improve sleep and reduce anxiety for them. Um, again, th there's not a lot of scientific double-blind control trials that would support that for any stimulant, but still, I find some people uh, find it a, a, a helpful drug. Um, however, you know, in certain settings, um, I've known people to break open the capsules and snort them. And that's a word of caution uh, to patients and families. Mm -hmm. So anything can be abused, as I say, even water. And there's such things I as agree. water drunks. Right. So, but that, that's a good, uh, a good possibility for some people. Um, uh, to pyramate, uh, the pyramate story is a little complicated in that, uh, 
Kyle Kapman and other researchers have shown that in certain people with uh, high stimulant use, cocaine or methamphetamine, that topiramate does seem to be better than placebo. But overall, in large populations of people, it probably is not any better than a placebo. Yet, I find it useful for some for some patients for craving and, and sometimes useful in those same patients uh, for anxiety. So uh, possibly uh, a, a helpful medicine. An, another medicine that's been studied a lot that, uh, you know, may or may not be useful and certainly in double blind trials has not panned out, particularly for methamphetamine is bupropion. There've been really large trials in Asia and in Australia and on the West coast um, and, and it really hasn't panned out. But yet for some people who are in this first two years of where there's just this blah malaise. life and malaise, low energy, lethargy, lassitude, yes. uh, yes. bupropion can be helpful for those people. Um, again, some people don't tolerate it because for some people they can get anxious on it or have trouble sleeping. But um, uh, and, you know, complications from it are rare, but rare complications include inflammation of the liver or even seizures. But that's uh, if somebody's in recovery and they're not using methamphetamine, it may be useful. Uh, my, my drug, which I have to, you know, disclose my conflict of interest because I studied <laughs> it for eight years, uh, it, yep. it is, is modafinil or provigil. Yeah. Yeah. And it's uh, considered to be an atypical stimulant that acts principally weakly on dopamine. It's used primarily by sleep disorder specialists to treat narcolepsy and sleep apnea right. and, and uh, some other conditions that lead to excessive daytime sleepiness. Uh, but um, in, in some studies that both we've done that have been done and sponsored by uh, the National Institutes of Drug Abuse, some multi-center studies, that if you have someone who purely uses, and that's sort of a rare group of people, purely <laughs> uses stimulants, uh, cocaine, um, that it is better than placebo in reducing cravings and reducing use. Uh, and modafinil also blunts some of the physical uh, effects of cocaine, like it blunts uh, pulse uh, rises and blood pressure rises. So people who are on modafinil and using cocaine acutely, it tends to protect them from some of the damaging blood vessel and heart uh, problems with cocaine. So, but in, again, in large populations of people who are using not only cocaine, but they may be using uh, opioids, they may be using marijuana and certainly alcohol. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it, it doesn't seem to be effective, but <clears throat> again, um, I like to use it. Um, I think abuse of it is rare. It is a schedule four drug. So, you know, one has to be alerted to that, um, you know, watch prescriptions, uh, make sure patients are not filling them early or taking more than they're prescribed. But um, it, 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 for me, has been a, a useful drug. And there's a s slender bit of uh, scientific evidence that it helps some people. And, and I've seen uh, clinical case studies in my own patients that they do well with modafinil. I've never had a patient knock on my door who was uh, addicted to provigil modafinil. In, I, I in have, my, have you seen it? I have not seen anyone addicted either, but I've read some case reports in the literature okay. of that. So they're very, quite rare, uh, but they have occurred. But I, I think it's 
by and large, okay. Now, I'm going to mention something else, even a little more yeah. controversial, and feel free to edit this out of our oh, conversation. Sure. <laughs> but N-acetylcysteine is an amino acid, uh, yeah. and, and in a sense, it helps restore, reestablish the value, the balance between intracellular glutamate and extracellular glutamate, extracellular glutamate being the glutamate in between synapses. Okay. And uh, there's certainly good animal evidence that N-acetylcysteine in stimulant addiction is useful in restoring natural balance between intracellular and extracellular glutamate. Uh, in humans, uh, the evidence is, is kind of weak, but there are ongoing studies uh, better designed than some of the studies we did. Uh, and I still have some hope about that. that it, it, first of all, it's something that um, it, it's basically a health food. You can buy it in health food stores. So it's uh, relatively inexpensive compared to a, a pharmaceutical agent. Um, it has very few side effects. Most of the side effects are confined to the GI tract, which would include gas, bloating, um, mm -hmm. diarrhea, and a few, a few people. Allergic reactions are very rare to it. Um, so we're, we're just going to have to wait and see uh, if it's helpful. And, uh, and I will not edit that out, Bob. Uh, I agree with you, and I've recommended it. It's, it's healthy. It's an amino acid. It's at a health food store. And uh, it, if the glutamate explodes in the, in the cell, doesn't that drive drug-seeking behavior? Yes, that's right. It does. And that imbalance in the cell drives drug-seeking behavior. So and why course, not? It's just yeah. an extra protection against the cravings, right? Yeah, it is. And the other thing is, it, in, in a sense, it's also protecting the neuron because if the glutamate gets too high, you get a reaction in which uh, calcium is driven into the cell in too great amount. And then that leads to proteins to, that coagulate and the cell can die. So, uh, and, and by the way, modafinil in animal studies also has a protective effect on neurons, probably for a different mechanism, but uh, uh, that in, at least in animal studies, modafinil is protective uh, against anoxia, uh, in other words, lack of oxygen, mm -hmm. uh, and it's protective against uh, so-called oxidative stress due to free radicals. I did not so, know that. That's so, interesting. Uh, so, but, you know, that's never been shown in humans. And mm -hmm. uh, I will say that trials in Alzheimer's disease with modafinil have, have been negative, been, that it hasn't helped people with advanced Alzheimer's disease. Uh, but, uh, you know, again, there may be a place for it in, in, in treating addiction in some people. So these medications, uh, are they for cocaine and methamphetamine off-label use or mostly cocaine? Mostly cocaine, I'm afraid. Uh, bupropion okay. has been studied a lot in methamphetamine addiction. The others have been less well studied. Um, you know, again, the studies done in the United States, east of the Mississippi, have been mostly related to cocaine and those drugs. And right. um, so I would say there's less evidence for methamphetamine addiction. I, I, um, I, I was talking to one of our residents today in clinic about your podcast tonight, and yeah. he was telling me, you know, he said, I see many more people in the emergency department who are uh, come in with problems related to um, 
cocaine. He said, but when I see methamphetamine patients, I don't forget them because they're so devastated by the disorder and they have so many physical problems and psychiatric problems and they're often psychotic. They almost always have to be hospitalized and uh, they have a much longer course of recovery than people who are um, uh, trying to get off of cocaine. I have talked to people who have had uh, methamphetamine psychosis and what they'll tell me is, I feel like I'm on fire from the inside out. They, mm-hmm. they have such hyperactivity and, and compulsion and this, they will stay up for three days in a row, taking things apart, taking televisions apart and taking bicycles apart, sitting in Walmart at three o'clock in the morning, taking pieces of their bicycle apart and, and even the wheels because they have all this boundless energy and they're so psychotic. And I talked to one guy once who said he was talking to uh, shadow people. They were first shadows and then they started talking about him and he was just terrified, absolutely terrified. Uh, he thought he was, he was losing his mind. Uh, you know, they hear soundtracks in their head. And yeah, I think you're right about the physical picture. Like, can you paint me a picture of somebody with a, a crystal meth addiction, what they look like physically? Well, they have lost a great deal of weight. Uh, their personal hygiene is terrible. Uh, their uh, dental hygiene is awful. Um, they are jittery. They, they often have uh, movement disorders somewhat similar sometimes to Parkinsonism. Uh, they will have uh, tremors of sometimes both hands, sometimes one hand or arm. Oh, wow. uh, they are in constant motion, like you say. Uh, I'm reminded uh, back in the days when I was a resident out on the West Coast, and I saw a lot of methamphetamine addiction then, even that long ago. And I had a close friend who had been a roommate of mine in college. who was in graduate school at Berkeley. And my wife and I went over to dinner with he and his wife one evening um, from Palo Alto. And we, we were having dinner with him. And he was telling me about the maintenance man for his building mm-hmm. who had been a valedictorian of his high school class. And I when we were leaving that night, this guy was hanging out there and he was working on some gadget frenetically. I don't quite remember what it was, something mm-hmm. to do maybe with a air conditioner or something or furnace. And uh, I met this young man and for somebody who had been the valedictorian of a high school class, he was emaciated. He looked like he had been in a prisoner of war camp. Uh-huh. He stuttered. His speech, uh, he missed words, uh, he mispronounced, his speech was slow. It, it was like he had had some damage in, uh, of his brain in an auto accident. Uh, so, um, and he just ended up working as a custodian in, in a condominium. Oh, how devastating. You'll never see executive functioning deficits like you see in methamphetamine addiction. Right, right. The impulsivity inability to, to, to make decisions. All of the executive functions are just devastated judgment, uh, decision-making, just terrible in, 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 in people with methamphetamine addiction. And it takes literally months to years for that to correct itself. And maybe in some people, it never does. If I had a child with a methamphetamine addiction who was presenting like this, I would hire an interventionist and I would take them to a 
treatment center anywhere that I could find that would keep him for more than 90 days, because isn't that the key is just to establish uh, abstinence, right? Keep them away from the drug as long as possible. Yeah, that's the foundation of uh, early recovery is abstinence. I mean, there is no substitute for that. The brain has to heal. The brain must heal and the brain can't heal if it continually is exposed to the methamphetamine or the cocaine. And, you know, having those kind of resources in America is really only for uh, wealthy people. people. Um, I'm I'm, I'm being hated, actually, by the listening audience right now. Uh, People that don't have the means to to hire an interventionist, which is going to cost five plus thousand dollars and then fly him somewhere on the West Coast or the Midwest to a 90-day or a six-month treatment program. It, you're right, Bob. It's really, it's really sad, right? Like, how many programs do you know in our area that would house somebody for 90 days? I know of none. Right. And uh, we're lucky uh, in facilities to get two weeks, four weeks out of an uh, insurance uh, partial treatment for people. And, and, uh, you know, you know, a, a short hospitalization can be ten, twelve thousand $12,000. So right. really trying to find a, a residential treatment center. But, but I will say this though, that um, there are some places around the country that are uh, generally 12 step based that are run by uh, recovering addicts often. And they're, you know, they're not uh, the Ritz Carlton by any means, but they're usually adequate facilities with adequate food where people go, uh, they get treatment half the day, they work part-time jobs half the day, they turn over all or a portion of their earnings to the treatment center to support the whole place. And those places do good work. There are not a lot of them around you know, in recent years, some of them have had licensing troubles and so forth. But frankly, we need more of those places. And, and um, they're not really run along a medical model, so to speak, but they can get the job done. And if people look for those on the Internet diligently, you'll find a few of them uh, in, in most states. Some of them are run by uh, philanthropic groups, some are run by church groups, um, uh, and some are just self-funding. Um, but you're usually inexpensive to get to. There's usually an upfront fee of five hundred to $3,000, and then the person's expected to earn their way through the program. So look for these programs, because I think if I had a methamphetamine addiction and I had holes in my brain or areas of my brain that were underactive, I would not really expect myself to be able to go to a meeting on on time, look at a schedule, take a the right bus route, have the wherewithal to get myself a sponsor, read from a recovery book. Uh, I think it's a lot to expect from someone in a severe addiction, possibly with some psychotic features uh, with ex- executive functioning deficits. So yes, I look for them for sure. And tell me a little bit about contingency management, which I know is part of treatment uh, that's research supported, right? For methamphetamine addiction? Uh, It it is. So contingency management uh, takes its um, uh, foundation for its treatment from basically learning theory and from operant conditioning, uh, meaning that if you introduce 
rewards into a person's life who is, say, addicted to cocaine. And these rewards might be groceries. They might be a gift certificate for groceries. There might be gift certificate for clothing or other things. And you reward people for abstinent urines for Mm -hmm. cocaine, for one thing, or for you know, maybe attending group therapy for another. Uh, These can be really complicated um, programs uh, or simple programs, and they do work and they help people start restoring a balance between natural rewards and the rewards of the cocaine. Um, The problem has been is translating these into community-based treatment centers. Um, So these programs look very good in research settings and university settings, Mm -hmm. but when you try to get them funded in a community program, like a county substance abuse program, uh, basically the governments and the politicians in those programs look at, you know, why should we reward people for not, using cocaine we that's silly why should we pay for these kind of programs they should buck up and do this on their own so well that sounds uh, so punishing doesn't it it really does and it i think they fail to see the value the other program of course is cognitive behavior therapy which really tries to train people to deal with cravings uh, by alternative methods to look at their triggers that lead to uh, cravings uh, and, and, and drug seeking. Uh, so th- those can, both of those can be very helpful. Um, true cognitive behavior therapists who really know a lot about addiction are some in some areas are really uh, hard to find. And of course, it costs money and insurance uh, sometimes pays for those kind of treatments and sometimes doesn't. But contingency management should be used more widely uh, because it's scientifically it works. Uh, but there are a lot of practical considerations that have just limited it so far. Stigma, for one. Mm-hmm. I remember I was out at uh, University of Vermont uh, once, and they were doing a study with pregnant women and contingency management to get them off cocaine. And the results were wonderful. The uh, women, right, where they showed up to their prenatal visits and their urines were negative for the most part. It had a huge impact. Yeah, Dr. Stephen Higgins and others were at the University of Vermont, and they started, they were pioneers in that area. And later, they and others at uh, Johns Hopkins did a lot of very valuable research in that area. And I I just wish those programs were more widely available in, you know, county treatment centers uh, for substance abuse. But so far, the penetration has been less than we would like. And, and let's talk a little bit about 12-step programs, uh, because they might be the mainstay for people struggling with cocaine addiction and uh, addiction to methamphetamine. We've got CA, Cocaine Anonymous, and we've got CMA, uh, Crystal Meth Anonymous. Um, what do you think of the 12-step community for this addiction? Well, I, th- I, think, I, th- I think it's great when you can find it. But I don't think you're going to find either of those uh, close by. Um, And and that's a problem. You know, we have Narcotics Anonymous. We have Alcoholics Anonymous. And with proper instruction, I think uh, patients can go to those meetings and um, use them effectively. Uh, But Cocaine Anonymous meetings are not very 
common. And when you do see them in a community, they're not always self-perpetuating or stable. They, they might come for a while and there would be some strong uh, recovery people in them and those people will eventually move away or whatever. And, and then they, uh, you don't have them. But 12-step programs provide such a richness to recovery in so many ways. So it's not just attending meetings and having mutual support and hear about the recovery journey of other people. That's part of it. But there's mentorship in the meetings. There is guidance. And, and really, 12-step programs provide a roadmap. It says, okay, you're here now. Yeah. You're at ground zero. You're wiped out. But here is the roadmap you're going to use using these 12 steps to move back to a life of uh, sober recovering. And, uh, you know, recovering is the word, not recovered. People are always recovering and working at it. But this is the roadmap to move through that. So um, it's a valuable thing. If you can get people through those first few meetings, it's very helpful. And I'm going to cough here. So. Oh, go right ahead, because you, you, ta you timed that perfectly, Bob, because there's only about two minutes left in the podcast, so you can cough as I thank you. <laughs> well, thank you. I, I'm, uh, I have seasonal allergies, and I take um, uh, Zyrtex, and um, I'm not trying to give a commercial for that, but um, <laughs> it, it only works partially. It's, well, it's like some of the other medicines we talked about. It helps a little. Well, I'll tell you, uh, Dr. Malcolm, you did not waste 35 years of your life. I'm, I'm so grateful uh, that, number one, that you came on the show. And number two, I'm very, very appreciative of all your wealth of knowledge, because somebody in the listening audience might listen to this podcast tonight and either go to a Narcotics Anonymous meeting and get connected and start a new way of life where they may talk to their doctor about trying an off-label medication that you mentioned. Uh, they may all of a sudden say, ah, this is early recovery and I'm not supposed to feel joy. There's nothing wrong. And they may take away that we really, really, really think they're brave. They're courageous. Uh, one of the most courageous recovering people I know is somebody recovering from a stimulant addiction and have hope, right? Because there are people working tirelessly like yourself in laboratories all over the world, trying to find a medication for craving. That's going to happen someday. We, we all hope for that. And I believe it is coming. And I, we have not talked about uh, the use of uh, psychedelics in the treatment of addictive disorders, but that is being researched and we hope for those being, they will be useful too. Do you know that I just did a uh, podcast with uh, a woman who's an MDMA uh, trained psychotherapist that was in the phase three MAPS trial using MDMA assisted psychotherapy to treat severe PTSD. And she also is using some uh, psilocybin with patients that have terminal illnesses in Canada, and it is exploding that whole frontier. So I'm so glad you brought that up. There is hope to the, to the person suffering with an, a stimulant addiction today. There's hope, correct? There, there is much hope, and we hope for many other treatments also. We have some hope for transcranial magnetic stimulation. It's already approved by the FDA for smoking cessation, and uh, we have its under study for stimulant addictions, 
and uh, other addictions as well. So I think there, there's much room for hope in the future. Well, thank you for that. And thank you so much. It's been my pleasure talking to you tonight, Bob. Thank you, Pat, for having me. And it's such a pleasure to see you again. We'll be back next week. Thank you all for joining us. Thank you for joining us this week. Recovery, the hero's journey is broadcast every Tuesday at 12 noon Pacific time and 3 p.m. Eastern time on the Voice America Health and Wellness channel. As you wait for our next program, remember, you are definitely not alone.